pray. Lord Jesus, we trust you and we believe your word and your word says that it will work. It will transform us into your likeness, into your character, into your nature. So we pray that you would send your spirit to make an impact and a change in the way we think and the way we behave and ultimately that you would secure us in who we are in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All of us have some degree of insecurity about who we are. It's in every one of you. And if you deny that, then that itself is a manifestation of your insecurity. It's impossible because we're not perfect. And because we're not perfect, we have things that we know are imperfections about ourselves. And what we do in our humanity is in recognition of our imperfections, we, based on, you know, there, there are many different personalities. We're all very different and distinct from each other. But in our imperfection that we recognize, we seek different ways to counter that imperfection with human behavior. And when we attempt that without Jesus being the cause of that change, then what we develop are unhealthy habits that stem from our insecurity. So I want to dive into that a little bit. And the reason I want to dive into it is because, well, we're all insecure. And again, varying degrees of insecurity. I know people that I would say that is a person who seems very secure in who they are, but I'm also aware that they're a human and there's definitely going to be some insecurities that are, are hiding in there. And there are people who reveal their insecurities every time they open their mouth, right? So there's just varying degrees of insecurity. And <clears throat> there are, I think, I'll give you kind of maybe like two extremes and I think part of it is also what, how old you are, like the generation that you're from. Uh, the, the older generations, I think they tend to manifest this insecurity in kind of a I can take care of myself kind of way. I got to figure it out. I don't need anyone's help. I can do it on my own. I don't need a handout. And all these younger generations and these younger people need to take a, a note from our book and suck it up and get over themselves and grow up. Right? That's insecurity. That's pride. And pride manifests that insecurity. And so for younger, gen younger generations, again, these are extremes, okay? This isn't just like, that's the older generation, and this is the younger generation. There are all kinds of different people in between, but the younger generations tend, maybe like my generation and lower, to be insecure and manifest in what are a lot of mental health issues that are that are making a significant impact in our culture and in our society and in our world. Crippling anxiety and depression and other mental health issues tear away at the fabric of our society because these younger generations are now becoming the adults. And they, with their crippling mental health issues, are raising children, and those children are receiving the uh, production of a parent who is insecure. And then these children will also develop their own form of insecurities. And so that's just, it's just, what I'm really expressing to you is something that you all know. Sin 
impacts you, and that sin gets passed down to your children. And one of the ways that sin is manifested is in our insecurities. So I want to talk about where those insecurities come from, why they're there. Um, and, and, and I want you to understand that, like, this is not new. I could talk about the older generation and then the younger generations. And if you're thinking, what about previous generations? This is not, insecurity is not new. Moses was insecure. He was like, God, I'm not talking. I'm not talking in front of those people. David was insecure. He wanted to feel so important that he took someone else's wife to make himself feel better. Peter was insecure. He, he knew who Jesus was. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, who do you say I am? And he's like, you are the Christ. So let me ask you guys, who do you say Jesus is? And I believe most of you would say he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's God. He's the Savior. That's what Peter said to Jesus' face. And then what happened? Jesus got crucified. And then some people were like, hey, you're with that Jesus guy, right? He's like, I don't know him. That's insecurity. He knew exactly who Jesus was, and he still wasn't secure in who he was and in his relationship with Christ. This is not new, but it is deadly to your mental health and to your spiritual health. So all of us manifest our insecurities in various ways, you know, very, with various motivations. Two people could manifest the same expression of insecurity that are both coming from a totally different desire, fear, and motivation. So what I know psychologically is it is impossible for me to exhaust this idea of what security and insecurity is and the whole mental health spectrum of what all that means, there's no way in a one-hour sermon I can address all of that. It's impossible. And so I'm going to be vague in general, but I want to get to the root of where insecurity comes from, and then I'm going to offer you a solution. So what I'm actually going to do now is tell you the solution right away. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. This is the answer to your insecurity. You're going to wonder why this is the answer, what it means, and then I'm going to show you how or why those two ideas, are, our insecurity and this verse, are related to each other. So verse 19, Paul writes, For in him, that's Jesus, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So just first, take note of these words. So in Jesus, in the man Jesus, Paul's already established the, the, the humanity of Christ. And, and most people in the early church did not question the humanity of Jesus because they literally saw this guy with their own eyes. And if they didn't see him with their own eyes or touch him with their own hands or interact or talk with him face to face, they knew someone who did. These Colossian people knew Paul. Paul knew Christ, and these people knew Peter, and they knew John. Peter and John walked with Jesus for years. So there's no reason for, any, for, for most of the early church to, to deny the humanity of Jesus. They knew this guy existed. He's the most famous and most popular human that existed in the time. Nobody didn't know about Jesus. Everybody heard of Jesus. And if you want evidence that they did, it's been 2,000 years and everyone's still talking about him. So back then, he was the hot new thing. 
And it wasn't just a trend. That trend has stayed up forever and will remain forever. So his humanity is not in question. What is ultimately in question, especially for all the false gospels and false teachings that were in, in, uh, finding their way into the early church, what was in question was his deity. Is he God? Is he divine? And Paul's answered that many times in this text. And again, what he does here is he just kind of encapsulates this whole idea and says, listen, if there's any question about whether Jesus is God or not, listen to what I have to say. For in Jesus, in the man, in the human being, Jesus, who is fully 100% human, all the fullness. So those two words are huge. All, meaning totally, and fullness, meaning Here's the actual Greek definition of the word fullness here. As entirety of measurement, some total, full measure, complete amount. So all, totally, and the sum total, full measure, complete account, and entirety of measurement of who God the Father is dwells in Christ. That is absolute divinity. That is total deity. That is Christ. 100% of God dwells bodily in Christ. And we see Paul tell us this truth in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, for in him, that's Jesus again, for in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in that verse you have, in that one verse, just the two ideas together. That what we call the hypostatic union. It's just a fancy word that theologians use to express this idea that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man in one person whom we call God, our Savior, our Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. That means that anything less than 100% deity in Jesus would make him a false god. So he's not 50% God, 50% man. He's fully God, fully man. And then if Jesus wasn't fully God, 100% God, then not only would he be a false God, and all of his claims that he made would be false then because we couldn't believe him, but also every ounce of Christianity would become untrue. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we should be pitied above all people because we're believing a lie. If Jesus were 99.9% deity, or 99.9 repeating forever, as close to 100% as you could get without being 100%, that would make him just as much a false god as if he were 50% god or 0% god. So our entire theology and all of our doctrines and even our salvation as well as God's glory and your joy in him hinges on this truth that Jesus, in his human flesh, carries the full measure of all of what God is. And that he is not just a carrier of God, but that he himself is God. And some had said, especially back then, and you see these arguments still today, uh, that if he's not God, then he's an angel. Or if he's not God, then he's just like this really special prophet sent from God, kind of like Muhammad. You know, the Islamic defense or the Islamic belief system or religion is predicated on this guy, Muhammad, who claims to have been sent from God as a prophet. 
But Muhammad does not make the claim that Jesus makes. Jesus never says, I'm just a prophet. He says, I am God. And I am man. Nobody's been able to make that claim, have it verified, and stand true endlessly. Or if he's not God, some people have just said, well, he's just a human, just 100% man, that's it. And he tricked people into thinking he's God. But, or or, or he's, if he's not God, he's just a figment of our imagination. That was very popular in the early church, too, that he was an emanation. And again, what the, the heresy that was invading the Colossian church was Gnosticism. And the Gnostics taught that Jesus was just this emanation, this figure that just kind of came from God, that he was a lesser version of God and a, in, an imperfect version of God. And to believe in Jesus was just the first step to climbing the ladder to God. And Paul destroys all that false gospel, all that heresy and false teaching. And so these are some of the beliefs. He's an angel or a prophet or, or he's just a good man or he's just some uh, figment of our imagination or emanation that came from God. But there's one thing that no reasonable person has ever denied about Jesus. Now, keyword, reasonable person, because there are very unreasonable people who will say wildly crazy things and they're impossible to have a conversation with. But there's one thing that everybody accepts. Jesus was a good man. Nobody's denied that. Even those who seek to oppose the deity of Christ, or even like atheists who are, who are, are seeking to disprove the existence of God, don't deny this very substantiated truth that there was a human being named Jesus in the first century who had thousands of followers and was widely known and accepted as a very good man. What this then presents for us is what we call a logical fallacy. If a person were to claim that Jesus is anywhere from 0% to 99.9% God, while they also claim that he is good, then they have committed a logical fallacy, meaning their logic doesn't add up. And this is, this is why. If Jesus is anything less than 100% deity, then he would just have to be a good angel or a good prophet or a good spiritual emanation, or at the very least, just a good man. And the problem with saying that he is anything less than the fullness of God, while he also claims that he is good, and while we also believe that he is good, is, that the, is the reality that Jesus himself claimed that he is God. In John 20, 28 through 29, Thomas sees Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus' response is, have you believed because you have seen me? So Thomas calls Jesus God, and Jesus validates Thomas's claim. And then earlier in John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then the Pharisees interpret Jesus's statement this way in John 10, 33. They say, what you just said, Jesus, is this. You, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus' response to that in 1038 is, yeah, exactly. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. So Jesus himself makes claims to his own full deity. So 
if Jesus is not God, or if Jesus is not fully God, yet he claims to be fully God, then he cannot be good if he's not God. Because he would be a liar and a manipulator, manipulating thousands of people to follow him all for a selfish gain, whatever that selfish gain would be, that this non-God would trick people into following him and believing the lies that he's preaching. The entire gospel is balanced on the truth that Jesus is God. And if he's not, everything he taught is a lie. So he can't be good. And he certainly can't be a prophet from God because then he makes God a liar. So this doesn't add up logically that we would accept that he's good but not accept that he's God. So, Jesus is either has to be fully God or he has to be a bad man who deceived thousands of people and still is deceiving people today. And since the evidence for his goodness is overwhelming and historically, scientifically, archaeologically, and, and logically validated, that means his claims about his own deity must be true. Now, I don't think I blew anyone's mind telling you that Jesus is God. I assume most of you are here because you already believe that. So this text, though, is not just about the nature of Jesus. Okay, This text is also about the nature of God, the Father, in Jesus. So look at verse 19 again, and he says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What does this tell us about God? It tells us more than just the claim that Jesus is God. It tells us this, that, this is, that, that this truth, that Jesus is God, is a pleasure to God the Father. So I remember once when I was, when I was uh, younger, still a father, had little kids, so my boys are a little older now, but one of my kids was really young, and I had preached a sermon at our previous church, and this church was really big. There was like a, like a thousand people in this church. And, and so like you didn't get to meet everybody and you didn't get to know everybody. So like to the little kids, anyone who stood at the pulpit and preached was kind of like a, like a mini celebrity to them, right? So like if you'd come off of the stage and like talk to the kids, they were like, oh, he's talking to me. The guy who was up there and everyone's listening. You know, so like it, it was really cool because one time I saw one of my little kids one of my boys, standing with his group of friends, and he looks over at me and he points at me and goes, that's my dad. <laughs> he was just like so joyful and so happy and so proud to like show off to his friends like, that guy, that little mini celebrity up there preaching, that's my dad. So do you think that it pleased me to see my son claim to others to be my son? And, and not only that, but to make that claim with joy and pride, of course it brought pleasure to me. My own son took great joy in being my son to the point of needing to share it with others as if my value was so high to him that he felt others needed to know his relationship to that value. Now, would it please me just as much if a kid who wasn't my son was standing with a group of friends and pointed at me and said, that's my dad. And he had joy and pride. 
that wouldn't please me as much. Why? Because it's not true. There's no pride and there's no joy in that because there's no truth in the claim. So the claim of Jesus' deity brings joy to God the Father because it is a true claim. And Jesus' divine claim is not only is not the only truth that makes God's dwelling in him such a pleasure. The totality of who Jesus is in nature and in character and in action and in attitude is what makes God's full dwelling in Christ such a pleasure to him. God loves, God the Father loves to dwell fully in Christ because Christ, because Jesus is perfect. And he's not talking about God the Father loves to dwell in the divine Son. What he's saying is God the Father, the totality of divinity, loves to dwell fully in the fullness of a human being named Jesus. It is the human in whom God loves to dwell. That is massively significant to your theology and to the way you live your life and to the practical application of this text. God, I and mean, we could look at this and say, well, of course God the Father loves to dwell in Jesus. He's Jesus. He's God and man. He's the perfect guy. But it's not, it is his perfection that makes God love dwelling in him. But it is the perfect human that is the key. It is that Jesus in his full humanity has resisted sin completely, tempted in every way, yet without sin. Perfect in all of his, all of his thoughts, perfect in his attitude, perfect in his actions, perfect in morality, perfect in nature, perfect in all of his characteristics, not an ounce of sin, though tempted, regularly tempted with sin all the time. And this man, this human being, could not and did not resist sin by going, oh, here comes sin, time to, you know, hit the divine switch, doop, now I'm God, huh, get away from me, sin. It's not, that's cheating. That would be cheating. Because God can't be tempted. Right? We find that in the Bible. God cannot be tempted. So Jesus in his divinity, in his, in his deity, in, his, in his, his God nature, cannot be tempted. So who's tempted when Jesus is tempted? His humanity is tempted. His flesh is tempted. And so he has to resist sin in his flesh. He has the same battle you do yet without sin. Making, his, making God the Father take great pleasure in Jesus the Son in his human flesh and saying, this man is the only human who qualifies for me to dwell fully in with perfect pleasure. And it is his perfection, his resistance against temptation and his holy, perfect righteousness that makes dwelling in him my greatest joy. Would God be fully pleased to dwell in us, wicked sinners who have not resisted temptation, who sin regularly with our sinful nature, who choose unrighteousness over righteousness, would God be pleased to dwell in us? No, not at all. In fact, he can't because of our sinfulness. That's what makes Jesus unique. 
But, I say he can't do that, and he won't do it, but listen to this. Is God right now fully pleased to dwell in you today? Yes. So what's the difference between those questions? The difference is Jesus. The reason God can't dwell in you and won't dwell in you and to find no pleasure in dwelling in you is because you're, you're a sinner. It's that simple. We're all conceived into a sinful nature and that sinful nature opposes God's perfect holiness and God is just and right and cannot dwell with sin. So he fixes the problem himself with his son Jesus Christ and gives you Christ. So he sends Christ to earth. Jesus is born into the human flesh, fully man, resists temptation in the ways that you cannot in your flesh. Christ did. And he earns perfect righteousness. God dwells in him with full pleasure. Jesus dies on the cross carrying your sins if you would just believe in him and have faith and just trust him for your salvation. And that faith becomes the connector between you and Christ. And then Christ becomes yours and dwells in you. And having Christ in you creates a new relationship with you and God the Father. And now that you have Christ, you have the perfection of Christ. You have the perfect man representing you and being in you and not just being in you, not just being around you and not just being for you, but he is you. You are him. He is your new identity. And now God, because you have Christ, goes, I will joyfully dwell in you because of Jesus. And since we have faith in Jesus, he dwells in us eternally, and thus we are also eternally indwelled with the Father who takes great joy in being in us because he has guaranteed our perfection in Christ. Now, this text is not only about the deity of Jesus, and this text is not only about the pleasure of God the Father to dwell in Jesus, or the pleasure of God to dwell in you who are in Christ, it is also about who we are in Christ. Who are we in Jesus? I just told you, he is our new identity. We have a new identity. I mean, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that we become new. The old has passed away, Behold, the new has come. He makes all things new. We are, as Paul says, a new creation in Christ. And that newness is that we have a new identity. And our identity is Jesus. So how does this text relate to us? How does this idea of the nature of Jesus and the nature of God and the union between God the Father and God the Son, and the joy that it brings both of them, how does that relate to us? The relationship between God dwelling in Christ and then Christ dwelling in us is security. This is all about security. I'm not talking about eternal security, although that is definitely closely related. Right? Eternal security is this idea that once you're saved, you're always saved. You can't become unsaved. That once Jesus, once you put your faith in Christ, he keeps you forever. And you're, you receive eternal life. Eternal doesn't end. 
That's true, and that's a huge part of the security, but I'm talking about the opposite of insecurity. Secure in knowing who you are. Pride dwells in all of us. It's there, you know it, we all know it. I don't know anyone who denies being proud. And if they do, I mean, come on. The irony, right? Denying pride. <laughs> I'm not proud. Okay. So, it's there for all of us, right? The most anti-pride, humble thing you can do is admit your pride, right? And pride finds innumerable, innumerable ways to show up in our lives. And, and again, I can't explore all those ways, but you probably know them because you're you and you have pride and you see it show up. And you could probably all raise your hand and say, well, this is what I say and this is what I do. And I find myself personally defending myself all the time. And then I watch my kids or my wife or, or the kids that I coach in sports defend themselves. I'm like, man, is that what I look like every time I defend myself? Oh, and I see pride. Just when I see other people show it, I just think, that's me. That's just, that's, I do the same thing. And again, there are other ways in which my pride shows up, and I'm sure all of you could probably give more than one, different, more than one way in which pride kind of manifests itself in your life. But ultimately, that pride is a manifestation of your insecurity. Meaning, we aren't as secure in who we are. We aren't as insecure in who we think we ought to be or who we want to be. We're just not sure of who we are. And that insecurity comes out in lots of different ways. Mainly pride, being defensive, talking too much, talking too little, all kinds of different ways. The root of the problem is sin, ultimately, right? We know that, that it really boils down to sin. And our sinful nature, though, you got to realize this. When we talk about sin and sinful nature, sinful nature is, is, it permeates every nook and cranny of your entire being, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physiologically, psychologically, any word you want to insert there, every aspect of who you are as a person is permeated to the very core with sin. That's our sin nature. And thus, it manifests in ways, in, in the way that we think about who we are and what we are like. And because of the pervasiveness of our sin, who we think we are and what we think we are like and who we want to be and who we know we should be don't all line up. And the result is that we become unsure of who we are. And the persistence of our sinful heart and mind then begin to skew and twist our own thoughts about who we are. And then sin invades every aspect of our perception of not only ourselves, but of what we think others think about us, including what we think God thinks about us. And I think ultimately... Our problem is that we don't know what God thinks about us. Or we only know portions of what God thinks about us. And we tend to sway to one extreme or the other. 
oh, I'm such a wicked person, but God loves me, and we ignore we're dealing with our sin. Or, oh, God must hate me, and we ignore the endless mercy, grace, and love of God to cover your sins in Christ. We're just so extreme. We sin, so we punish ourselves. And God's like, uh, why are you punishing yourself? Do you not read the Bible? The gospel? Do you not know that I already punished that sin? Why are you punishing yourself? I already nailed that, that sin to my son on a cross. Why are you going back to the cross or back to the grave to dig it up and put it back on your shoulders. I already cleaned you off. You think about how the end times come. In Revelation, when we see in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, he's going to return with the saints. And Jesus is going to be wearing a white robe. And he's going to be riding a horse. This is just imagery, okay? But this is the imagery that Paul, or I'm sorry, that John writes about. And then with Jesus on his white, or on his horse with the white robe, are all the saints in heaven riding on, riding on along, or riding behind him, and we are all wearing white also. So the difference, though, between our white robes and Jesus' white robe is that John says in Revelation 19 that Jesus' white robe is what? Stained. This is the words he uses, dipped in blood. His is stained so that yours isn't. He's wearing the white robe of, which represents perfect perfection and righteousness. And his gets dipped in blood so that we can stand before God in perfect, white, unstained righteousness. Yet, we love to get off our horse, tear Jesus off of his horse, strip his white robe from him, and put it on ourselves and go, look at me, woe is me, I'm suffering for my own stupid sin. Wah, 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 I am a bad person. I'm going to punish myself. And we think it's humility because what we're really doing is taking Christ from his place of exaltation. We're stealing his, his gown and robe of glory and putting it on ourselves and ultimately sitting on his horse and saying, I am the sacrifice. And that is a false gospel that we believe because it feels good to punish ourselves. So, that, that we do that to ourselves, is insecurity. We are so unsure of who he is, and so unsure of who we are in him, that we want to rip him from his exaltation and his glory, and claim it for ourselves. And we would never say that's what we're actually doing. We would call it humility because that's how wicked we are. We would pretend like it's, oh, I'm just a, a wicked sinner and I, I'm just a bad person and we punish ourselves that way. And it's not humility, it's arrogance. Because real humility 
falls on its face. Real humble brokenness is a contrite and destroyed heart that knows that your sin offers God nothing. And humility falls, is you falling on your face saying, Jesus Christ, you are perfect, I am not. And real humility knows the gospel and real humility stands up from that brokenness and says the only bridge between this broken heart and being with God is the cross of Jesus Christ and his blood-dipped robe. That's it. And so now I can stand up in confidence, in boldness, in righteousness, not because I'm good, but because I recognize I'm a sinner who has been redeemed by Christ and I am wearing a white gown of righteousness. And now because of Christ, I can choose righteousness. I can live in holiness. I can do good finally. Stop punishing yourself for being bad and start running to the gospel. This is insecurity that makes us do this. Now, there are countless ways in which we express our insecurity. Countless ways. And and I can't address them all because there's just no time. It's too psychologically deep. There's too many rabbit holes to go down. So I'm going to let you explore those on your own. I'm just going to be general here. I want to talk about a few ways in which insecurity is manifested in your life because I want you to be able to go, that's me. And maybe think about that a little deeper. And start to pinpoint where your insecurities are so you can bring them to the feet of the cross and say, all right, Jesus, I guess I am insecure. Here you go. And that that would humble you to the point of falling at the gospel, knowing the gospel, loving the gospel, believing the gospel, and living the gospel to the point where you can finally realize that Christ has picked you up from the dirt to make you good, righteous, and holy, and now you can live that life. So, some people manifest their insecurity by being controlling. And others manifest their insecurity by shutting down. Some people manifest their insecurity with arrogance, some by flattering others. Some people manifest their insecurity by talking too much. Some people manifest their insecurity by not talking at all. Some people manifest their insecurity as jealousy, while others manifest their insecurity as being detached and uninterested. And what I want you to see in those couple of examples is that those things that I said were all opposite of each other. Talking too much and not talking at all can both be, both reveal insecurity. Being controlling and and being distant can both reveal insecurity. So, There's a reason for this. There's a reason that two opposite things can both be an expression of insecurity, either in one person or in two different people. Here's your reason. The manifestation of your insecurity is not the problem. It's only the symptom. The manifestation of your insecurity is not the problem. It is the symptom. The real problem behind your insecurity is the motivation lurking behind your behavior. What is driving 
that insecurity? What is driving the thing that reveals insecurity in your life? Ultimately, what is motivating your insecurity, and this is true of everybody, is fear. It's fear in all of you, in me, varying degrees in different people, but it's there. You fear not getting something that is vitally important to you. And you may not yet in life have even discovered what that vitally important thing is to you. So you might not, might not have consciously figured out, oh, here's my core desire, my, my, my primary drive in life that brings me as an individual, unique, and distinct person. This is this one desire and drive that motivates all of my action. All of you have that thing, that one thing. It doesn't mean you are aware of it yet. Maybe some of you are, maybe some of you aren't. However, whether you're aware of it or not, it is motivating your behavior. And the fear of not getting that vitally important desire manifests in different forms of insecurity. And lurking deep within you, defining your personality and your attitude and your thoughts and your behavior is this core desire, this vitally important motivator and it could be one of many things. It could be a desire to be loved. That could be your core desire in all of life. It could be a desire to be right. It could be a desire to feel valued. It could be a desire to be significant in life and to the world. It could be a desire to feel capable, self-sufficient. It could be a desire to feel and be supported by others. It could be a desire to find fulfillment. It could be a desire to feel safe or to be safe. Or it could be a desire to be stable. You may not even realize that one of these desires that I just mentioned are motivating your thoughts or behaviors and that your fear of not getting this desire is causing insecurity that manifests in unhealthy behavior and unhealthy thinking. If your core desire is to feel loved and you're unhealthy, you will go to incredible lengths to love other people to the point of exhausting yourself beyond what is healthy just to earn some little fragment of loving response back to you from someone else because you only just need to be loved. And what do we do? We give people the thing we want most. So a little side note here, just so you know, interacting with people. If someone is constantly encouraging you with words, you know what they deeply want from you? Encouragement in words. If someone's always giving you gifts, why? Because that's their love language. They want gifts. They're not giving, I'm not saying they're giving you a gift because they want you to give one back. That's not at all what I'm saying. But people will give you mostly their love language. And so... We do the same thing with our desires. Our core, our deepest core desire, the thing that really motivates who we are as a person, that really drives all of our actions and thoughts and personality, is what we're going to give other people. If your core desire is to be right, 
and you're unhealthy, you will sacrifice any relationship and any person's feelings to ensure that everything is just and good and right and perfect. It's unhealthy and it's insecurity. Because a secure person who desires everything to be right can begin to learn to live with the way Jesus did, which is, the reality is, Jesus was still perfect in an imperfect world because he was so secure. Or if your desire is to be stable, but you're unhealthy, you will retreat from any difficulty in life because you fear being unstable and difficult things make life unstable. And so you will retreat from any difficulty in life instead of facing those challenges and you will retreat from confrontation to avoid anyone tipping you over emotionally because you have to be stable. So our fear of not getting our greatest desire drives and motivates our insecure behavior. And those are just a few examples. Again, I said I could go on and on and on with all these things, but I want to get to a bigger, better point here. What do these symptoms of, of insecurity have to do with the fullness of God being pleased to dwell in Jesus? Just as much as God is pleased to dwell in Jesus, so also Jesus is fully pleased to dwell in you. Just as much so I already expressed to you the significance and the, grand, the grandeur of the idea of God the Father finding incredible, immense, and perfect joy and pleasure to dwell bodily in Christ the Son, in Jesus the man. And that same pleasure, that same degree and grandeur of joy and pleasure that God the Father gets in being in Christ is the same degree of joy and pleasure that Jesus gets in dwelling in you. That reality, that truth, is the foundation of your security and who you are. That truth is also the weapon that you are given to wield against your insecurity. There is no person in human history who has ever been as secure in who they are as Jesus was. In Matthew, 7, or Matthew 27, 13, Jesus stood before Pilate. He was, getting, he was being tried before he was crucified or murdered. And Pilate asked Jesus, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Listen to verse 14. This is, this is, one, of the most, this is one of the most powerful things in the Bible. One of the most powerful sentences in the Bible. Verse 14, but Jesus gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. The power of this statement shows the power of silence. I'm talking right now, and you guys are listening. You're following along with every word I say. 
You get what I'm doing, right? It's weird, isn't it? When I stop talking, it's uncomfortable. You're like, yeah, okay, say something. Right? The power of silence is insanely great. What is so amazing about Jesus not answering Pilate? Pilate was constantly dealing with criminals. And what do criminals do when they get caught? What do they say when they get caught? I didn't do it. Right? They get defensive. Why? Because they're insecure. They get defensive. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I swear it wasn't me. I wasn't there. You're thinking of someone else. You got the wrong guy. Pilate is so used to criminals defending themselves, yet Jesus makes no defense for himself. And Pilate's going, dude, they're making one of the biggest claims against you that I've ever seen in my life. No one has ever claimed to be God himself. That's what you're claiming. Aren't you going to defend yourself? And Jesus gives him no answer, not even to a single charge. Why? Why was he silent? Because he had nothing to prove to Pilate. Jesus was so secure in who he is that he did not need to tell Pilate, dude, I'm God, I really am. You gotta believe me, man, don't kill me. I really am God, I can prove it. And then boom, turns him into a frog. You know, he didn't have to do that. He, he, didn't, he, he could have done that. He could have just been like, um, hey, Father, let's prove to Pilate that I'm God. Because if he does that, then Pilate goes, oh, well, you're God, I can't deny it. This is crazy weird, I'm certainly not gonna have you like crucified. And then he gets released and he doesn't die on a cross and we're not saved from our sins. Jesus has to die on the cross. But he's so sure of who he is. Why? He's so sure of who he is that he's silent. He doesn't need to defend himself. He's just like, I know who I am and my father knows who I am. That's all I need to know. I don't care what you think about me. That what you think about me does not define who I am. That's the problem with us. We, don't, we, we let what other people think about us define who we are, and then we think incorrectly about who God is because we don't know him, because we don't read our Bibles to learn about him, and then we create a false conception about who God really is, and we apply that false conception to ourselves and think that this God, who doesn't think the way we think he thinks, and we think that he thinks that way about us, and then we become insecure with who we are. Because the reality is, that's not who we are. And what do we do? We walk around saying, woe is me, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Where in the Bible is the church called sinners? I've said this before, you guys have heard me say this. We're not called sinners called saints, we're called holy ones, we're called sons, we're called daughters, we're called children of God, we're called heirs with Christ, we're called more than conquerors, we're called saved, we're called righteous, we're called holy, we're called perfect. Not because we behave in that way all the time, but because that's who Christ is. And he is in us. And he is our new identity. 
I am not perfect. I am not righteous and holy and good and a child of God and an heir. I am not that, but Christ is. And when I believed in Jesus with faith, I was connected to him eternally and perfectly. I'm not just held in his arms. We are the body of Christ. You are his arm. That is far more secure than being held. You are the body. It is your identity. And we don't know our true identity, so we become insecure. And we don't know our true identity because we don't know who God really is. And we don't know who God really is because we don't care to take enough time out of our day to spend time learning about him. That is a fact. And I can say it's a fact because there isn't a single person here who spends enough time in the word. That is not meant to make you feel guilty or to produce any shame in you. That is a reality of our world. You have to go to work and you have to do your job. You have to love your wife and you have to watch movies with your kids. And you have to take a shower and go to sleep and you can't worship Jesus while you're unconscious. But if you study him enough, maybe you'll dream about him. I don't know. So my point is, I'm not saying that everybody should spend every waking second reading about Jesus and studying and whatever. That's not my point. My point is that we all waste a lot of time on a lot of garbage that doesn't teach us anything about God. We spend time on TikTok and Facebook and all these other social media apps and watching movies and TV and, 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 and fishing and hunting and sporting events and watching games. And I know, I know you guys, you're thinking, oh, so I can't do anything fun in life? This is not my point at all. You can do all those things. You can do all of those things. But those things become our addiction. And those addictions steal us away from God. And we start to believe lies about who we are because we're manipulated by a culture in a world that has its hand in every single form of communication with you. And we read those things and we watch those videos and we look at those posts and we do those activities and we watch those games and we participate in those activities and those consume our time and our energy and we get our theology and our life concepts and our worldview from all these things from the world because we spend 80% of our time there and then we wake up in the morning sometimes and go, I should read a Bible verse today. And you think that that 0.00005% of your time that you spent reading one Bible verse is going to powerfully outweigh 85% of your time you spend doing other things? Never. Because what happens, though, and this is the power of the Word of God, is that we get inundated with the world and all these things that change our perspective and our view of who God is, which then creates a false view of God, and then we apply that false view of God to ourselves, and we become insecure because we don't know who we are, and we don't know who we are because we don't know who God is. And he is our new identity. So we don't know him, we don't know ourselves, because he's our identity. You don't know what Jesus is like because you don't read about him. He is your new identity. You don't know you, and you're insecure with you because you don't know him, and he is you. Does that make sense? I think it does. I think it's magnificent. I think it's life-altering, life-changing concept that should affect the way you live today. I don't know about you, but I plan on, at some point in the next 24 hours, watching six hours of football. <laughs> okay? 
I don't know when, because I don't know what my day is going to look like, but I'm going to watch him at some point. If I wait until later, I can fast forward through the commercials, so maybe like three hours of football. Is that a good use of my time? It can be. It can be. It's okay. And there are ways to make even better uses of it or lesser uses of it. Can I do that and still bolster up and build up my identity in Christ? What are you going to do with this message? I mean, really, I, I, never, I don't think I've ever even asked that question in this church. I've been here for six years. I don't think I've ever asked that question. What are you going to do with this message? Because this problem of insecurity is destroying our culture. It is destroying our society. It is destroying the fabric of the American culture. And not just the American culture, every culture of every nation and every society in the world, period, is destroying. The amount of anxiety that is uh, PTSD and uh, depression and other, all these mental health issues that are just, just killing families, people committing suicide, People not knowing how to handle the, the simplest task. People being incapable of building a relationship because they can't fathom the idea of going outside and meeting someone new because it makes them crumble. Because they're so insecure. I'm not shaming those people. What I'm saying is that is a reality in our world. And everything we do in our world just, just fills up that dirty cup of mental illness that is crushing our world and destroying an entire generation, our children, who live on phones, spend all their time like this. I mean, have you ever, I don't know about you guys, I, I make, I'm saying that about kids, I do it myself, okay, whatever. <laughs> I mean, we do it as adults, you know. It just shows the addictive nature of it. How many of you are over 60 years old and spend a lot of time on your phone? Imagine if you had that thing with all of its capabilities when you were five. Where would you be now? Very different. So what about the five-year-olds and the 10-year-olds and the 15-year-olds who just like this? You ever spent, you know, I, I've, I think we've all done it. Most of us have done this. You, you get on your phone, and you're like, oh, I got to like maybe just check an email or a text. And then you're like, oh, what's going on on you know, social media? Do click, open the app. You're like, oh, 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 oh. And they got these algorithms that like watch every, like they pay attention to every detail. And they're just like, hey, he liked that. Let's give him more. And you're like, I did like that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you just keep going and scrolling. And then you like, you're done. You're like, man, I, I should probably stop. What was I doing? Why did I get in my phone? For it's been an hour? And you lift your eyes up and the whole world does one of those like weird movie tricks where it's like it, the whole like reality wobbles, you know, and your vision comes back and you're like, where am I? Like you just came out of this weird trip, right? It's, it's, it's crazy how our brains just get like vaporized by these things because it's just perpetuating that thing that you love to look at and do. And it's not just our phones. It's a lot of different things. I already brought them up. I'm just saying there's so many things just sucking your attention away from what you need to know. And it produces an insane amount of insecurity. And insecurity is manifested out of mental illness and unhealthy thinking and unhealthy behavior. And we act like idiots. We act like jerks. We act like uh, we're, we're just, we punish ourselves. We do all kinds of unhealthy things that are not gospel-centered. Our insecurity takes our attention away from God 
attention that was meant to be focused on Jesus and on the gospel. So ultimately, this is the point. Our insecurity is a product of not believing the gospel. So the solution is to be more and more gospel-centered, more and more gospel-focused, more Christ-centered and more Christ-focused so we can become more like Jesus by believing who God really is in the Bible, understanding what Jesus is like, who he is like, how he behaves, how he thinks, so we can do as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter or chapter 10, I don't remember, it's in 2 Corinthians, where he says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we will steal every inappropriate thought, every false thinking, every thing that is thrown at us by the world that's going to change the way we identify with ourselves or think about who he is or think about who we are. We take that captive and we filter it through the lens of the Bible, we filter it through the words of God, and we strain out the truth to pull out the reality of who Jesus really is, and we apply that nature of Christ to ourselves because we are in Christ, and that is who we are. And when we finally start to believe that, insecurity will fade, and out of you, Christ will shine. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we trust you. We love you. We thank you. We want to be more like you. You are who we are. Our identity is you. It is in you, and you have given us yourself. So let your spirit work in us and through us. Just pull us away from all the things that steal opportunities to dive into knowing you better so that we can become healthier and happier in you. And all of life will become better and healthier and happier. There are people, Father, running to all kinds of drugs and therapies and solutions that may help in some extent but aren't solving the problem when all we really need to do is run to you. At the core, that's what matters most. The rest of that, Lord, we know is supplemental. So we ask you to use those other things. Use therapy. Use medication. Use the wisdom that you have given to us in this world to help us deal with mental struggles and mental health. But at the foundation and at the core, give us Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.